Welcome to the September episode of A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. So great to have you here. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to be more than a listener and become a supporter, you can do that on A Brief Chat's Patreon, patreon.com slash A Brief Chat. And if you do that, you will get an extra bonus episode each month. Plus, you'll get essays and photos and videos and things from my various van travels. So again, you can go to patreon.com slash A Brief Chat to do that. And if you're already doing that, thank you very much. So I've kept this uh, note on my phone ever since I started interviewing people on a brief chat, which began uh, without interviews. And I kind of made the list via people that I either knew or knew of from social media that I thought were fascinating and I'd love to talk to. And I've done a lot of interviews since then. And the exact same name has been at the top of the list the entire time. And for some reason, and I don't know why, uh, it took me until now to finally uh, invite my guest for this show. But it turns out to be perfect timing uh, because of a new thing that's just been released. So let me start by welcoming Alice Teeple to the show. Alice, it's great to have you here. Hello, nice to be here. Well, it's awesome to have you here. Uh, the, the thing that is kind of good timing is that you just released uh, a really incredible photo essay that's accompanied by a text essay um, on Interlocutor. And it's called Love Thy Neighbor. And it takes a look through both photographs and words at uh, the homelessness situation in New York City that you've been documenting. Uh, so uh, first of all, uh, can I just ask how you started, why you started taking these photos, actually, is maybe a better question. Um, I think part of it was... Um... I come from a very rural area in central Pennsylvania, which you're well familiar with. And um, that kind of poverty doesn't exist there. And, you know, we've always had, um, you know, people that lived among us that had troubles, but um, nothing as dire as the situations in the streets of New York, where people are literally on the ground, half naked in some cases. And um, it's very hard to take uh, if when, when you see it, it's very shocking. Um, and part of me, I think maybe wanted to document this to show people in other parts of the country, just how terrible the homeless situation is. Um, and that it's not just what we tell ourselves that, you know, it's, it's like, uh, there's a lot of, um, blaming of people in those situations. And I didn't think that was fair. So I started documenting them, um, Part of it was maybe shock for myself and also just kind of like, did I actually see this? Like, is this really happening in, you know, in society today? And um, it went from there. One thing about uh, there, there certainly is uh, perhaps not in the part of uh, PA where you came from, but the part that that I have lived in at various times, State College, there definitely is a, a sizable homeless population there and there is now yes yeah and um one thing though that uh i because I, i've also lived in new york city at various times and um one thing about new york is that and i think your photographs really highlight this it's pretty easy in state college i think to never come into contact knowingly with folks who don't have housing uh, whereas in new york city i think it's almost impossible not to come into contact with folks who don't. And in some ways, like the photos in your collection of 
people who are just passing by and really not even looking anymore. It's like unhoused folks are just part of the landscape. I think yeah. that that is so stark in New York and certainly not just in New York, but it's certainly stark in New York in a way that uh, I hadn't experienced in other places at the, the first time I moved. I moved to New York. It's really in your face in New York because um, a lot of the photographs, if, if you probably noticed, are juxtaposed with advertising that, um, you know, projects a bright, cheery future for us all and a caring insurance company and a, and a beautiful bedding and, you know, all these other things. And there were literally people sleeping in front of these billboards. Um, so a lot of my collection is just the juxtaposition of um, rampant capitalism and its casualties. You mentioned that, uh, so most of these photos in this collection were taken between 2015 and 2019, and um, much of that was the Trump administration. And you mentioned how kind of how, how much protest activity there was during that time period and how little of it was focused on this very present, very easily recognizable issue. Um, and I'd, I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that. It started off um, in the Obama administration. I, I moved here in 2015. And um, that was when I really started noticing things. Um, you know, I'd be on the subway late at night and there's 12 people in a car sleeping, um, et cetera, et cetera. But it did start escalating um, after Trump got elected. And I'm not saying it's a presidential thing specifically because it really comes down to people answering to corporations, lobby, interest groups, things like that. And um, the, this is all, these are all casualties of that. And I felt that whatever the problem was really didn't have anything to do with the political situation as much as it did the, um, the financial situation of the country and just rampant greed. Um, you know, I cite the statistics of the homeless in my essay of, you know, what really causes it. And most of the causes have to do with um, landlords, um, you know, job situations, people losing their jobs, domestic violence, all these things that aren't essentially political in nature. So that's really that's really where it comes down to. It's it's really it's a it transcends all of that. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I capitalism is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> just generally. I mean it's almost to whatever societal ill uh we could point to there is at its root somewhere uh the corrosive effect of of money and the way our system works and the fact that even the most basic needs of human life are commodities as opposed to things yeah. that are just provided because we're human beings who were born onto this planet. That's right. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh one thing I was uh, I was actually really struck by was how difficult it was for you to find places for these photos to be shown. I, I guess I had the idea that this kind of documentary photography was, I'm looking for a word that's not popular, but it means the same kind, you know, was, was the kind of photography or one of the kinds of photography people wanted to display in, in galleries or on websites or, you know, wherever it might be. But it sounds like that's very much not the case. I wanted to avoid exploitation of these images as art because um, I see a lot of my contemporaries that do shoot these things and it doesn't have a real like humanitarian kind of um, intent behind it. It's, it's like poverty tourism. 
Um, and I'm very much against that. So, you know, some of the galleries that I did contact, um, I didn't want them to be funded by the very corporations that are causing the problems. And there's a lot of that with um, the gallery scene in New York, as you well know. Um, so I thought the publications might be the better route. Um, and I tried to find independent places that might take them. There's a lot of rejection letters. Um, and then I did reach out to a couple of people, um, think I, can, I could do a pop-up and, um, you know, something independent, very independent. And um, people were concerned that the people in the photographs might see them, which I understand. And, I, you know, there's also just kind of a, a slippery slope with those kinds of things where um, you want to show the problem and you want to highlight the problem, but how do you do it in a way that's dignified and doesn't take away the integrity of the people in the, in the photographs? They are humans and they deserve to be treated as such. I don't want to see them as, you know, artistic subjects or um, anything like that. Cause I, I certainly wouldn't want that for myself. How did you, get around that problem. How do you, how did you come to terms with letting these photographs be seen publicly? Well, I had awful PTSD for a few years. Um, I encountered a lot of really up upsetting situations. Um, I, I talked it over with a bunch of friends of mine. Um, you know, I, I really agonized over what to do with these photographs because I knew they were important historically. And, you know, I felt that they, had a role in possibly helping others out, but I wasn't sure what path to take. And I reached out to a couple different organizations and they didn't want anything to do with them as well. Um, you know, at the time, I, I think things have changed. I came to the conclusion that the exploitation was already done to these people. And I just happened to document it at a point in time. Um, you know, I've never wanted to sell the images or anything like that. I think it's, you know, I, I don't, I don't know like what the ethical steps are for these pictures. Um, so I'm just taking it, you know, one step at a time and at least getting the word out. And Interlocutor was the first um, publication to, to, to do that for me. So I, I really appreciate that. I, I can, I mean, I can really understand the struggle that you're laying out with understanding what to do with images like this. And yeah. I, I do think in the end to, to not show them to anyone uh, it all, and I don't mean to, I'm not uh, trying to criticize or anything, but if you, to not show them to anyone feels like some sort of complicity, I get the way in which yeah, you know, yeah. I get the other side of that argument, but it does feel like the, if you have the, if one of your gifts is to be able to capture difficult images of reality that people would prefer not to have frozen in front of their vision, they'd prefer to be able to walk past. And that's one of the things you are able to do. Then it feels like, it feels like a worthwhile use of that talent to yeah, freeze I mean, those images. I looked at like the, you know, the, the WPA, is that what that was? Um, yes. That, that the Roosevelt had concocted and, you know, there was a lot of staged images and a lot of real ones. Uh, there were a lot of very heavily edited pictures like um, Dorothea Lang had photographed Native Americans uh, during the depression and the Dust Bowl, and they were never shown publicly. Uh, for instance. And so there's always been that kind of censorship, even with politically backed photo projects like that. Um, you know, Lewis Hine and Jacob Rees photographed those images in the 19th century. And 
you know, we're showing child labor problems, uh, tenement situations, um, homelessness then. Uh, so, you know, we're really back on the karmic wheel, like back on the same spoke. And um, for me, it's, it's, it's a very different situation now. People aren't as shocked by these images um, because we've become so desensitized to it. And it's nothing new, which is um, almost worse. So, you know, we're in a new Gilded Age. Um, you know, we have all this technology at our disposal. We have abundant resources. We have plenty of empty homes that have no one to live in them. Um, and yet they just sit idle, you know, and nobody, um, nobody's coming forward and, you know, asking themselves, you know, what, why is that wrong? Um, so I feel like my images have become sort of the messenger for that. Uh, but you know, what good are they if nobody wants to see them? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's a, and uh, uh, unfortunately a problem that you, the artist cannot, cannot solve there. I, I do sometimes <laughs> yeah. feel like Not my responsibility. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> In these situations, it does sometimes feel like uh, the, pro the problems with society that are brought to light by the fact that these photos exist. And most people don't want to know about them. Like that's out of your, out of your control, but I, I get the way in which it can make the problem seem like absolutely there's that, insurmountable. There's, there's also, there's also the backlash of, you know, the fact that I'm a white lady, you know, and sure. you know, people, people that don't know my own background um, and history um, would just look at these and say, Oh, she's just some privileged chick that came from the suburbs that, you know, you know, goes home crying every night. You know, it's just like, that's not true either. And so, you know, I don't think I was in the mental place to, prepare myself for that kind of backlash. I'd seen it happen with other people and um, I didn't want to deal with it. If, if, if we're going to be quite frank about it. So this is a, a new experience for me, which is that I, um, I twice in my life have been by many people's definition, homeless um, once in, in 2012 uh, and I didn't tell anyone and I disguised it as um, a bus tour around the country to interview jazz musicians outside of New York City uh, and called it the jazz or bust tour. But the reason that I had to go on it in the first place was I had nowhere to live. And I thought, well, I can either be on the streets of New York City or, or I can be on the streets of warmer places. And uh, so I I went south and um, I spent most of a year uh, staying like on the couches of people I'd never met. And I did document a lot of things in that time, but literally not one instant of it was about homelessness. And then now for the last, um, I don't know, 19 or 20 months, um, I have lived in a van. And um, although I have tried to turn that into more than uh, just what I was forced to do, it is also the case that had I not bought this cheap minivan with the first round of pandemic money, I would have nowhere to live. And so um, I think, uh, you know, the, the whole van life thing has now become so, you know, so much a trope and so YouTubeized and everything right. that, um, yeah. that the fact that there are a lot of people who do it, like I even tried in the last several months uh, to stop doing it. And it's the impediments of just to getting into a place are, they were for me insurmountable, even with a job. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've decided I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing it. And I bring all of this up, not to make this interview about me, but to say, this is the first time I've ever 
talked to anyone on this show who has had a similar experience. And so since you wrote about it um, in the essay that accompanies these photos, uh, which will be linked in the show notes, um, I I thought maybe you just might want to say a few words about your own experience. Yeah, there's a lot of romanticizing about, you know, van life or, you know, being a nomad. And the reality of it is it's very stressful and um, it's shameful and it's embarrassing. You know, I, I'm a college educated person. I taught at Penn state for quite a while and, you know, they didn't pay you anything, but you know, at least I have that under my belt. (laughs) Um, and you know, I was dealing with a whole lot of personal problems and really what happened was just, it was like the movie Brazil, you know, it it was kind of a clerical error that, um, essentially destroyed my life for three something years. Um, and, I ended up uh, just kind of, yeah, couch surfing. Uh, I have an amazing network of friends who I would fucking do anything for. (laughs) And um, I dealt with things, you know, kind of all at once. And I, you know, I worked as a nanny during this time period and I watched a bunch of musicians, children. So they all understood what I was going through in the sense that um, they, they understand the nomadic lifestyle. So I was in good company with really awesome people and amazing kids. So I think that really kind of kept me grounded and, um, you know, at least taking care of somebody is, you know, a kind of a good bump for your soul. Um, yeah, I lost my bank account, um, when I got an overdraft fee and that I couldn't pay back. Um, and at the exact same time, like all of my IDs had expired I didn't have access to my paperwork at the time to get new ones. Um, And just the um, incredible bureaucratic red tape just to get back on the grid is insane. It took me a long time and the help of several friends to uh, get back on track. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody, Um, which, you know, not, not to say I'm a victim or woe is me because I worked very, very hard in that time period and, you know, really relied on my network of people um, to stay alive. Um, you know, it's, it, these things are very precarious if you're only one check away from destitution. And that is the majority and the reality of this country. Um, we, we're really screwed. And um, I think as, as this progressed, my photographs uh, become, kind of became a reflection of myself, like, Christ, this could be me. If I didn't have my network, I could be this lady. I could be this poor guy here. I could feel those emotions that people kind of tuck away. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, I'm kind of choking up thinking about it, but yeah. And the, like, I don't know if you've ever felt this way talking about this issue, but I, um, I, for example, am often reluctant to even refer to either my current state or my state in 2012 as homelessness, because I also had a network. Well, in, in 2012, as it turned out, it was a network of people who were complete strangers to me, but they were listeners to the show, the podcast that I did. And so that's how I ended up on their couches. And then um now um i i guess i have a kind of a network for the emotional support piece but the you know i i have a thing to live inside and 
I, I guess because of those things and, you know, because of the fact that like when I was homeless in 2012, I was making a podcast, like there's just a, there's something about like all of that seems so it's almost seems like bougie homelessness or something to me. Oh yeah. And so I like, I don't want to be seen to be trying to like take some kind of like reflected glory from the things I've survived. And yet, um, I it is true that I never slept on like a city grate so that I can right. have the heating from it. But right. but that doesn't mean that the situations that I was in or the one that you were in were not also filled with their own kind of suffering. And more importantly, that 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 kind of suffering is shared by so many people and it is kept intentionally so quiet so much of the time. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It um, seems like, like an added layer of pain or something. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you can't go on dates with somebody if they find out that you're living on someone's sofa. That I mean, that sucks. Um, you know, it really fucked with my self-worth. It, you know, made my whole um I, I mean, I was constantly working. I was working any gig I could possibly get in order to just like save up some money to sublet. So, you know, sometimes I was playing double duty, you know, watching two kids a day or um you know, doing photo gigs at shows and I was really wearing myself out, you know, just physically. And so I was taking these photos to and from these gigs I was running to, I didn't have um, like a full-time job. And let me tell you when there's no bank account involved or um, if your phone number runs out, like how can you apply for nine to five jobs? Um, You know, like I have a resume that's pretty great. Uh, but I didn't want to give up my autonomy either. So it was a constant push pull of um, finally being where I was artistically. It's like that twilight zone episode where the, you know, the world blows up at the guy's glasses. Right. He's like, Oh, I have all the time in the world to read and you can't see the book. It felt like that. Like I, I felt like all the autonomy I'd fought hard for in order to be authentically creating on my own um, came at the cost of that, um, you know, like it really messes with your self-perception. Um, and all I can say is, you know, I know a lot of people that have since had similar situations happen to them, uh, or on the precipice of it. I've seen a lot of rise in suicides, um, sadly since 2020, um, I've lost a couple of friends and uh, the, the opioid crisis has risen because people are just unable to really deal with these harsh realities. And um, I'm not going to say like I'm stronger than them or anything like I could never do that because we all have our own paths. But um, I understand is what I'm saying. Um, you know, I understand that fear and I understand that shame that people feel. Um, of disappointing their families or um, themselves even. And uh, I just want to say like, you know, there are people who understand that you can reach out to. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the shame factor is just, it's such a huge piece of getting out of those circumstances. Like, well, that, well, that um, kind of leads into the other photography I was doing at the time, which was, um, like self-portraiture. So I was doing like the documentary stuff, but as I was going through all of these things personally, um, 
I was also documenting myself privately and I, you know, every day it, it was either like a really heavy emotion or I was going through some sort of PTSD trigger or something. I would start photographing myself in that state as I was and creating portraits of that, um, you know, pretty unblinking. Um, and I created a Victorian photo album recently where I, I kind of taught my or treated myself as a test subject, sort of like Jean-Michel Charcot's photographs in the 19th century of women going through hysteria. Right. Um, so this is another tangent, but um, that I wanted to kind of document my own personal um, situation as well. And I've heard it all before. I've heard people say, well, she could have just done this. She could have just done that. I could have, I, you know, at any moment I probably could have, you know, gotten my shit together and, um, you know, done it. But at the same time, I also felt that there was something around the corner. Um, and that's when the 2016 elections um, really started kicking in. I started photographing the rallies and through those rallies, I started making a lot of connections with people in various um, groups in New York City. Um, they were either activists or they were part of the art scene or the music scene or the acting scene. And I became friends with a lot of these people at these protests. And that's how I started um, becoming a photographer of portraits for other people. What do you see when you look back on the photos that you took during those times? I don't like to look back at them. Um, I mean, why would I? <laughs> but I guess if I'm if I'm being objective about it and taking myself out of the equation, um, I'm very glad that I captured a moment in history that um, will be interesting. To, like thirty years down the road, I don't know what it's going to mean then. If we're all going to be you know swimming underwater or what, but um, I really think that these photographs will have a lot of worth historically. Um, and, and all of the genres I've been shooting, um, you know, it's, it's just what I see. So uh, I understand that you are working on an exhibit. That's correct. Uh, I'm working on an exhibit that is a 21st century spin on 19th century morning culture. Um, so I'm taking photographs, modern photographs of people and um processing them with 19th century process like cyanotype and albumin printing and uh, you know, various forms of film. And uh, there's three parts to it and they all do stem from the documentary photography that I was doing, but it's more of a, um, just not a fanciful approach, but uh, a more, there's a more conceptual meaning behind it. So um, there's a series of a woman in morning garb, you know, the, the melodramatic Victorian, you know, crying in a cemetery tableaus. There's my Victorian photo album of myself as the, the Charcot subject. Um, and then there's a third um, that is about the healing part of it. So I had my friends, Adrian Sexton and Joseph Keckler as my models because they're very, um, they transcend time and space. Uh, they, they look like they could be in the 19th century or today. And um, so I photographed the ser two series of them and I've been going to the Penumbra Foundation in New York City, uh, working as a volunteer and uh, making cyanotypes and all sorts of interesting things. Um, so I I'm trying to 
link um, back to Jacob Reese and, and uh, Lewis Hine. I kind of wanted to have my photographs harken back to that time period of the Gilded Age or just before, um, but maybe reworking it in my own way. They're all connected. It's all very spider webby. Um, <laughs> it's, all, it's all part of my thought process, but this exhibit is, is an offshoot of that. Um, you know, it's uh, taking the reality and kind of making this sort of David Lynchy sort of um, space for it to exist that's outside of um, normal experience. This is uh, the first time we've ever spoken, and um, I know it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. And uh, it, actually, it's a complete coincidence that you have a central PA connection because that's not how we know each other. Um, yeah, but, that I is mean, funny. To yeah. whatever degree we know each other at all, it's because on my other show, I interviewed someone you know, and uh, I learned about you through her. And oh, um, so the uh. But, but why I bring that up at all that we've never spoken before is because uh, everything I know about you, if I can be said to know anything, is from just the images I see on your Instagram. And oh, I often God. think, <laughs> which is it? Well, that's and that's my point. Exactly. That um, uh -oh. <laughs> I think of my like, I think that compared to many people I know, I am kind of a, a like a. A, I don't know, countercultural kind of figure. Like I just, I've had an odd life and I continue to have one. And I, I do things that most people who I know look at and think, Oh, it's, I would never have thought to do that. But then there are people who are those people for me and you are the prime example, which is why you've been at the top of my list of people to talk to for so long, <laughs> because I look at you, the stuff, I look at you, like the, the images you capture of the world and of yourself and of the people you're with and the things that you experience. And I think, holy shit, I am the squarest human being who has ever walked in the face of the <laughs> earth because people like this also exist who are like out there in this other world. Like it's like they're the, when I look at the light and obviously I know people's lives are curated on Instagram and you're showing us what you want us to see. And you, obviously your whole thing is that you take interesting photographs or one of your, one of your things. I totally get all of that, but I still think it's impossible to show us any of that stuff. If some of it isn't actually there. And so it's so cool because as I follow you on Instagram, I, I feel like your Instagram account is as if I have been in, in this one instance, given a portal to a dimension that's like one dimension over from ours. And I'm just getting to watch this person named Alice who lives over there and who every once in a while sends a photo through the portal so that we can see like, oh yeah, that's what it's like over there. Okay, cool. I mean, I still have to live here in the, in this world, but you know, it's awesome that I can see it. So then I talked to you and you like, your voice doesn't have a spectral echo on it or, you know, it's not like, it's not recorded backwards or right? you sound, you sound <laughs> kind of like you live here in the same dimension that I live in, which makes it even more fascinating that you're able to create what you I create. I mean, I do, I do go on a lot of like um, spectral journeys, uh, either, either through meditation or other means. Um, I'll go, I like to go into altered states and see what goes on there. But uh, I really think, meditation has been the key to grounding myself in in the 3d world wherever wherever <laughs> alice world is i ain't telling i ain't telling i think that's very fair <laughs> but um there's a few people that pop into my dimension every so often and they're always a blast but uh i think i think it's important that the stuff that i've done has has been very heavy and my instagram is surprisingly un 
curated. Um, you know, like what <laughs> some people have told me to brand myself and I won't even do that. I'm just like, fuck that. Like <laughs> I want to, I mean, I'm a photographer. So every day my job is completely different. Like one day I'm photographing a, a lovely, happy family. And another day I'm like shooting, I don't know, a sex party on a boat, um, you know, like weird, weird things. So like my life is very strange and I'm, I'm fine with it. Uh, I've gotten to have a lot of interesting adventures despite, despite the crazy hardships I've felt uh, I've gone through. Um, it has been a very fun journey in other ways. Like um, I've met amazing people. I've gotten to do a lot of really interesting things. And, um, you know, I wouldn't have had that if I stayed in my nine to five job. Um, and for that, I'm grateful. I think for me, it's very much about having a human experience, which, <laughs> you know, is the good and the bad. I hope I'm past my shadow. Um, I hope I'm, I have, hope my dark night of the soul has a, has arrived at dawn, but um, I think it's very important to really embrace what you're doing. And yeah, my Instagram is, is just like uh, kind of chaotic, which, you know, fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a beautiful place to bring it to a close. My guest is Alice Teeple. Uh, Alice's uh, photo essay, Love Thy Neighbor, uh, is linked in the show notes. Alice, it's been such a joy to talk to you. I really thank you for Likewise. Yeah. To do it. Thank you for inviting me. This was uh, an interesting journey. <laughs>